Okay. All right. Good morning, or rather good afternoon, everyone. This is Jamie Keach, and you are listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast, quarantined edition. I think I'm on day nine or 10 now of my quarantine. I escape next Friday, but we are filling the time very, very effectively by talking to a lot of great leaders in the mining and natural resource space. And today's guest is one of those leaders and a gentleman that I've been looking forward to talking to for some time now, and his name is John Podreski. And some of you will have heard of him, some of you will not. He has had a long career in the finance industry, in investment banking, with royalty companies, and a whole lot of other things that we're going to get into on this podcast. Today, he is the executive chairman of two companies, Morian Resources, which is a mining and royalty company, and N-Wave, which we're going to get into in a bit more detail. He's also on several boards, including Sandstorm Gold. So without further ado, let me please introduce John. John, thanks for coming in today. Hey, good afternoon, Jamie, and thank you for, uh, for having me on. It's a pleasure to chat with you and your audience. You know, I keep saying to people, thanks for coming in today, but really, I guess nobody's actually coming anywhere at the moment. I'm staying home here in Vancouver. So are you currently quarantined? I think you mentioned that the other day. I was. I came in from the United States last Thursday, so we're 14 days of voluntary isolation, and uh, so we're on day five of that, and I'm going to clean up everything that I can clean up around here. <laughs> All my files electronically, physically, and everything else to be tidied up by the time I get out of my jail here. Fair enough. Okay, so to start us off, um, for those who aren't familiar with your background, can you give us the 30,000-foot view of who you are and some of the work you've done? I know, you've, you know you're a professional uh, petroleum engineer originally, but you've spent most of your career in the finance space. Can you walk us through that? I'd be happy to. So it starts off, I took a mechanical engineering degree in Nova Scotia, never practiced mechanical, worked in the oil and gas industry as a petroleum engineer, did that for about five years. What I found was that the dollars, the, the mathematics for barrels was the same as the mathematics for, for dollars. And I found dollars more interesting than barrels. So I went and got a business degree and went into the financial services industry, did nine years with uh, what was Dominion Securities at the time, now RBC Capital Markets, seven in Calgary, two in New York. And then I joined Scotia Capital Markets, Scotia McLeod, and I did two in New York and seven in Toronto. And then I was fortunate enough to be recruited to be the CEO of an independent dealer called uh, Orion Securities. Did that for two and a half years, sold that to Macquarie Bank of Australia, and then went on and did some entrepreneurial uh, capital markets things. Spent two and a half years as a vice chairman of Cormark Securities, so dealers that cover stocks that move, event-related investments and such. And then hung up my skates uh, in 2012 and did what I would call collecting a number of part-time jobs, which was going on as an executive or a director of a number of smaller companies that had very active agendas in that. And that's what I've continued with uh, through to today. So the way that you know, I got to know you and how we've been introduced is through you know, you've been on the board of Sandstorm Gold, and I was recommended that I talk to you by a few people uh, associated with that organization. But Sandstorm is just one of the royalty companies you've been involved in. You've had a long, I guess, track record in that space. Can you maybe give us an overview of what got you interested in the, in the royalty sector? And then maybe we can talk about, uh, I think, how relevant royalty companies are to investors interested in the mining and metal space today. Sure. Um, I guess I had my appetite whetted in the early 2000s when 
um, the whole investment dealer community in Canada was financing income trusts. And there was royalty trusts as well, but they're public vehicles that paid out all of their cash. And I was captured by the idea that you could run a business and not perpetually reinvest your cash. There was a very smart man said to me one time, what's the net present value of a perpetually reinvested stream of cash flows? And of course, that's zero. And so um, these companies were paying out their cash to investors and they were very capital constrained, which meant management had to really be sharp on running the business. So I was captured by that model. Um, there was a point in time around 2007 where I helped a, a royalty company based out of Calgary called Alaris Royalty Corp. And they, they wanted to go public and I had a shell which had some special attributes that were appealing to Alaris. And we took them public through that. And Alaris became a company that would buy royalties off of entrepreneurially operated companies and then take that cash and pay it out as a big fat dividend to their shareholders. So that was sort of royalty company number one for me. It was not long after that, that Nolan Watson and David DeWitt and others at Sandstorm approached me to go on the board of Sandstorm, which at the time had a market cap of like a million dollars or so. They did a financing and I joined in when they did that financing. I've been on that board ever since. So that was royalty company number two. I got involved with a mining company in Nova Scotia called Erdine Resources Corp that had bulk materials, uh, coal mine and a granite deposit in Nova Scotia. And so sat down with the CEO, we split the bulk materials out from the Mongolian gold assets. And through about a period of about five years, we converted the working interests in the coal property and the granite property into royalty interests. So there's royalty company number three that I was involved with. Uh, there was a company in, in Saskatchewan called Input Capital that was putting a streaming model against canola crops. They invited me to be an advisor and then laterally to be on the board. So that was royalty company number four. And then N-Wave was a company that was in Vancouver. It's a technology company, creates a sort of state-of-the-art drying process, has patents on it, has a licensing royalty model, how they operate that company. And a friend of mine was a co-CEO and he had some personal things, uh, good things that he wanted to deal with and he asked me if I'd take his place. So I went and, uh, and joined him with them. So that was royalty company number five. So I really sort of enjoyed the royalty model. I thought that was a great way to do business. Um, and it was very different from the, from the operating company, company model. There's a bunch of attributes to royalty companies that make them, I think, superior to, uh, to other companies. So, you know, we're in a very volatile and tumultuous time right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world and we're, we are starting to see, uh, countries locked down. We're starting to see mines get shut down. Uh, Peru's what comes to mind for me, you know, right away, having locked down everything, shut down a lot of the mines there. We were talking to Ross Beatty last week about how Pan American Silver is dealing with that. To me, as an investor interested in the mining space, interested in the gold and silver space, the way to play this would be royalty companies, where you're where you're able to get exposure, uh, obviously, to all these operating, or in this case, non-operating mines, but you don't carry any of the capital costs or the operating costs or a lot of the risk that is associated with a mine that gets forced on the care and maintenance or something similar to that. And what's your view on that? Is this a good way? Is this something that resource investors should be thinking about right now? Um, are there risks in this that I'm not foreseeing? How do you view it? Well, I, I don't think I could disagree with anything that you said because I'm involved with so many royalty companies and I'm only involved yeah. with one one operating company, but let's touch off on a couple of reasons why I would agree with you. Uh, firstly, in a royalty company, you can have many, many assets and still be a small size. So Sandstorm is a, uh, 
call it for simple numbers, a billion dollar company. They have over 175 properties in there. There would be no gold mining company that would have 175 million properties and be only a billion dollars of market cap, but have to be a hundred billion dollars of market cap. So you can have tremendous asset diversity in what is, you know, a modest size company. So if a couple of your mines shut down, like the mines in Peru, you still have another, you know, 75 mines to, that are operating that can, uh, that can do things for you. The other thing is that when you're an operating company and you go on care and maintenance, uh, you're paying for care and maintenance. So you have no revenues and, uh, and, you're, and you're lugging the expenses. And we see that now with the coronavirus, that there's guys that are shutting down mines, they can't open them up, but they're gonna pay salaries, they're gonna pay uh, the maintenance operations and so forth. If you're a royalty uh, receiver from that property, you won't get royalties, but you won't get expenses either. So it's a superior model in, uh, in that basis. And so those are sort of the two attributes that say it's a good time to invest. If you want to go to fundamentals of royalty companies, there's a couple of structural things that make them very, very good to own. One would be that if you invest in a royalty property, and this is when you're financing somebody, a miner needs extra money to build the mine, you provide a portion of that capital. Yep. So then you're going to get a share of the production of that mine. It's very very likely that the miner is going to put more capital in and extend the reserves. So maybe you invest on the basis that the mine has a 10 year life and you're going to have a 10 year annuity. And on year five or seven, the miner puts more money in and extends that annuity to, for another four years. So you bought a 10 year annuity, you'll be delivered a 14 year annuity. And those last four years in effect come for free. Right. So you're not paying for any of the potential discovery or expansion upside that's often associated with producing mines. That's correct. So there's upside that other people will want to do because they'll earn a return on it and you'll piggyback off of that. Can I, um, can I ask about that? Now, <clears throat> I'm, I imagine that happened a lot in the early days of, of royalties. Do you think that's getting priced in now because we've seen it so often with these companies that people are paying a premium for the initial royalty with the hope or, uh, or maybe an understanding that there will be this continued upside? Have you seen any of that? I, I have seen some of that, and I, and I think it's only natural that people would build in. If you're, if you're bidding to finance something, you would bid, bid in a premium because your competitive bid is going to say, I know it's only 10, but we think it's going to be 12, so let's bid on 12. And the solution to that, and the Sandstorm guys have been very, very smart about this, and I would do the same thing if we we're bidding on properties, but my other companies are a little different, is that you want to get with the operator early on and kind of lock up the opportunities. So you want to be the first the first financier in and say, we will help you in your early growing stages in your real time of need. And then we have some sort of capture on the royalty opportunity, a right of first refusal. Right. Or maybe we'll take a small royalty on a property that has yet to prove at any value to it, but we'll have it. We'll have it for cheap. And then when you turn it into a property, look at that, we're sitting here and we know it's going to extend it and we didn't have to bid somebody for it when it got to be a live property. Okay. All right. And do you have a feel, you know, for people at home who are looking at royalty companies, maybe they've never invested in anyone before, how, I guess, what the breakdown of the portfolio should be? Because every royalty company will have a certain percentage of producing assets, producing royalties or streams. They'll have a certain percentage of development stage projects and then exploration stage, uh, discovery stage, or maybe sometimes even pre-discovery stage projects. When you're looking at these things, do you have, is there a, you know, is there a magic number that you kind of look for or is it a case by case basis? Because the reason I ask this is 
and I want people at home to be thinking about this, that not all royalty companies are created equal. There's so many out there now that have no producing assets. And when I go through their portfolio, no chance of a producing asset anytime soon. So I just want to know what you know you think of so much experience in, in this side of this, the industry. I think it's hard to assemble a perfect portfolio in and have a company that has the perfect portfolio that you want, but you have a vast array of companies to choose from. So you can put the portfolio diversity in, whether it's producing long life, short life, precious metals, base metals or not. And I'll, I'll show you two goalposts. Sandstorm, as I mentioned, has 175 royalties across a swath of, um, across a swath of, of minerals and geography. On the other end of that is Morian Resources, which is a company that I'm the executive chairman of. It has two royalties. One is not in production and one is. And one of those is a coal mine in Nova Scotia. And it's a great coal mine. It's on Tidewater. It's got a massive resource. And it's got one of the best operators one could ask for. The other property is a granite project, which has a 50-year life to it. So if you invest in Morian, you're going to get one asset existing and one asset on the come. Coal mines have a risk in them that's unique to coal mines. <clears throat> so don't go and invest your whole portfolio in, in Morian. Put some money in Morian and you've got a focused target play on coal, seaborne metallurgical coal. And then look at the other ones and say, what do I want to have in terms of my risk profile? And what do I want to have in terms of uh, my, my length of my asset and, and diversity of the asset pool and so forth? So there's enough royalty companies in existence on the Toronto Stock Exchange, let alone other stock exchanges, that you can build the, uh, the portfolio of your choice. The one thing that I would look for <clears throat> is that these companies have enough cash to survive. They're low G&A companies typically, mm -hmm. but um, don't find a royalty company, and, and you pointed out a good example, that has a bunch of non-producing properties that doesn't have enough cash to hold it through to when the, the checks show up. So that kind of leads me into the next thing I want to talk about. You're involved in mining companies, which is most of what we talk about here at Resource Insider, but you're also involved in non-mining companies. Right now, everyone's seen their share price hammered. You know, no one knows what's going to happen next. How are you guys managing really the uncertainty of these times? Do you have a... Do you see this as an opportunity? Are you sort of battening down the hatches? What are you guys doing going forward? Every company that I'm involved with where I have some influence um, are companies where we're, um, we're prepared for the storm. So Sandstorm is a very liquid company. Um, they've got tremendous finance and they've been lifting their bank lines from 150 to 200 to 250 to 300, kind of at increments of 50 every year. Or so just to, to, just to generalize on that. And they're very fluid. Um, Maureen Resources Corp, it's tiny, but it has three and a half million dollars of cash on its balance sheet. Annual G&A is about six, $700,000 a year. So if we just simply went home for four years, that company would survive. At N-Wave Corporation, we've got about $14 million in the bank. We have a, a living business with revenues and, and manufacturing equipment and collecting royalties. So we're feeling that we got you know, a few years of runway on that. So the way to deal with tough times is actually to be planned for tough times. And what you want to do is say, if times get tough, then um, I'll have the resources and the financial wherewithal and the expertise to find opportunities if they're in tough times and take advantage of them. That's where you want to live as opposed to saying, Tough times have come, and now I got to go on the defense, and I have to put out a, put out fires because we weren't prepared. So, from an investor's perspective, you know, when I'm looking at companies inject objectively, you know, there's going to be a lot of companies. It's it's kind of too late for at this point, and we need to be refocusing our portfolio to the ones that have you know put in the work ahead of time and prepared for an event like this. Yeah. 
You know, in preparing for this interview, I wrote, I read a a small letter that you wrote. uh, I think it was in the National Post, right? Where you talked about how individuals and how people need to be prepared for for events like this or or uncertainty in the world. Do you have any thoughts on how, you know, investors, but really anyone sitting at home listening to this should be managing these situations? You've, you know, been in the investment and finance space for a long time. You've seen a lot of ups and downs. What, what can you tell us about that? So let's re- recap what I said in the letter. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the oil price shocks of the 70s, where oil tripled in the course of a couple of years. That created energy shortages, and there was lineups at the gas pumps to fill up cars. And then the U.S. went off the gold standard, which created a rapid period of inflation. So the 70s was a disaster for many people uh, through the inflation, through the high cost of energy and so forth. Then in the early 80s, when inflation was quite strong, Paul Volcker, who ran the Federal Reserve in the United States, thought they would kill inflation by jacking up the interest rates. And they got to 20%. So that had people um, lose out on their mortgages. They couldn't make mortgage payments. They were losing their homes. And so that was a catastrophe for many people. And that ran, those high interest rates ran until the late 80s. And then the 90s were relatively smooth sailing. In 2001, 9-11 happens. That changed the way that we got around the world. It changed the whole nature of travel. It changed a significant amount of uh, relations amongst companies and how people interacted with each other. And that. So there was a change. 2008, 2009, everybody remembers that. There was massive uh, you know, slashing of wealth for people. And then here we are in uh, 2020 and we have a pandemic going on. So I, my advice, which is what I do myself, is, is it's the old Boy Scouts thing. Be prepared because every 10 or 15 years, something's going to happen and we, all, we know what's going to hit the fan. So, so don't pretend that it's not because in we'll fix pandemic and in 2029 or 2032, something's going to come back. And they come without warning. You just get slammed without expecting it typically or most get slammed without expecting it. Those who are prepared can take advantage of it or at least weather the storm without a problem. Yeah, I think, you know, the way I first wrapped my head around stuff like this uh, that helped me immensely was the book, um, The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. Have you ever read that? And then it's sequel, Anti-Fragile. Yep, I've read The Black Swan. It's an excellent book. It's just good, um, good advice to take to heart and plan your life around. Yeah, and it's for those of you who haven't uh, read it, I highly recommend you check it out. But it talks about essentially planning for unknown unknowns. And, you know, I think where people get this wrong a lot of times is they think black swans are, are catastrophic or, or, or turmoil-inducing events that you can plan for. But the idea is there are things you can't plan for, you can't foresee coming, and therefore you need to set up your life and your portfolio in such a way that, Whatever unknown comes, you'll still you'll survive it and hopefully be able to thrive after it. And on that note, I'm wondering, you know, are you thinking about like, okay, what are the opportunities that might actually exist because of something this? Because the way I see it, and you know, in any tumultuous event where things change uh, rapidly like this, there's always winners and there's always losers. And someone's going to come out uh, as a winner and see the opportunity and the mayhem here and make a lot of money or put themselves in a better position or any number of things that they're trying to do. Do you see any specific opportunities here that people should be thinking about at home? Absolutely. Particularly um, in terms of searching, you talk about which royalty companies do you want to own. Um, Acquisitions are challenging because you're buying somebody else's property and you don't know as much about it as the person who's selling it to you. It's the same with buying used cars 
or buying homes and so forth. So they come with risk. Often ac acquisition environments are a bidding war against somebody else. Um, the asset that you know the, well, know the best and you know the worth of it, you know its strengths and shortcomings, is the assets in your own portfolio. So both Sandstorm and Morning Resources Corp have natural or normal course issuer bids, which allows them to buy back their stock. So Sandstorm bought back a year and a bit ago, bought back a pail of stock at somewhere around $6. <clears throat> the stock went up to $8 and $9. They, they stopped buying in volume. And then the stock fell back down to around 5 or $6 through the early parts of the pandemic over the last couple of weeks. So what does Sandstorm do? It goes and buys back a bunch of its own stock because now it's buying a great portfolio that it knows better than anybody else. And it's buying it back at a discount. And so it doesn't take a big M&A team to buy back stock. You call your broker and say, buy back some shares, and then we'll take them to treasury and cancel them. So Sandstorm's doing that. And we've done the same thing with Morian. In fact, in Morian, over five years, we bought back 18% of our shares. And my analogy for that is we have a company that's worth, and you have a price crunch because you have a market environment like we have today. And then you go and buy back that stock for $5. Who wouldn't trade $5 bills for $10 bills all day long? And so companies that can buy back stock to do that. So if you're looking for a royalty company that has one extra little tool in his toolkit, look for the ones that are buying back their own shares because they will buy them back when the value goes down low. And that helps preserve your value as a shareholder. And it tells you that management's looking at accreting value to the shareholders that don't sell into the issuer bid. So you and I are both obviously very bullish on royalty companies, but you know, in the, we've talked a lot about them, but in the interest of fairness, you know, what are some of the shortcomings you see in them or what are some of the risks investors face in investing in a royalty company or choosing the wrong royalty company? So there's three things that I would, uh, I would be wary of. The first thing is, is the management team capable of making a number of acquisitions? It's very difficult to inherit a royalty. You can send geologists out to prospect mines and find massive reserves and so forth. But in the royalty companies, they're typically acquirers. So they're financial people acquiring highly technical things. So you want a management team that knows how to buy smartly. One of the things in buying smartly is to find the operating team that can put the mine together. And it's happened to all royalty companies, I expect, around the world where they invest in a management team to build a mine and the mine is overdue and over budget and it doesn't work. And so you need a management team that can actually deliver on operating expertise or construction expertise. The other thing is that if that capital budget, the initial capital budget doesn't allow for building the mine and getting it up and running or the oil property, whatever it may be, you have to have a management team that can go out to investors and say, oops, we didn't get it done as we wanted to, but you can trust us to give us more money so we can get it done. So what you want to look for is a management team on the mining in the royalty company that knows how to pick management teams in the operating company. So those are two things to look for. The third thing is a, is a stock market phenomenon that I've watched happen numerous times and investors love royalty companies until they don't. And what makes them not love royalty companies is if the royalty company has a problem and they have to write off an asset. And in most operating companies, if you have a hundred dollar write down, your market cap goes down by $125 or $150 or something like that. In a royalty company, if you have a $100 write-down, you can watch your market cap go down by two, three, four, five times that. I watched one company make an announcement that they had a $20 million problem, and that problem was easily repairable, but it would take three years to repair it. Their market cap went down by $80 million in the first hour of trading the next day. So <laughs> you, want, you want to make sure 
but you can find a management team that's not swinging for the fences and also having high risk blow up investments. You want a, a management team that can find low risk, never blow up kinds of assets. Those are the ones that are the best building blocks for a royalty portfolio. Yeah. So, okay. As someone that is not on the board or the chairman of a royalty company, but likes them as an investment vehicle, do you think we're going to see the royalty companies penalized if mines are shut down during this pandemic? Do you think if XYZ mine goes on care maintenance for whatever the number is, six weeks, six months, that that will, that sort of effect will, that knock on effect will follow through and they'll be hit harder than the actual operator, even I, though it's under the understanding it's a temporary shutdown? I think there's a bit of a mulligan effect in the market that if a, if a good operator has his mind shut down because Peru says we're out of the mining business for six months, there'll be a, a depression in the share price of the royalty company that would own that asset. But I don't think it gets hammered like when they buy, when they put money in the mine, the mine never gets going. And so I'll give you an example. Sandstorm put some money in Colossus and it didn't work out. And it wasn't fun for the Sandstorm shareholder because Colossus never got going. So uh, investors will lash management for those sorts of things. But if you invest in a good mine and there's a, a force majeure situation, I don't think there's too much punishment for that. Yeah, it's hard to penalize a company when an entire country shuts down the mines. So, you know, before we say goodbye, you know, I was, you know, I'd like to ask, do you see any comparables in terms of what's going on today with other financial crises that you've seen in the past? Or is this a truly, you know, unique global event? And I've heard different answers from different people who we've been talking to. I, I think it's a somewhat unique global event because financial crises are typically solved by financial means. The market crash in 1987 were from Thursday night to Monday afternoon after the close. Market went down by 27% or so. Uh, was, it was an overheated market. It got to be a bubble. And so then mm -hmm. it crashed back. But the solution was simply reducing interest rates, providing liquidity into the system. And you can kind of get things going again with that. You can restore confidence. Central banks can do that. Um, this isn't a financial initiated problem. This is a healthcare or you know, a survival sort of problem and throwing money at, at, at a situation where the problem is people can't go to work because you got a disease going around. That's different. So this one's going to be a lot longer to work out. And the solution to this one's going to come with allowing people to get back to work by a variety of different means, whether it's drugs or how we isolate ourselves when we're in close proximity. All those factors are going to determine how we sort of climb our way back out. It won't be a money thing necessarily. Well, you know, I think it's going to be very uh, interesting and a little scary over the next few months to see how the government, you know, the U.S. and Canadian and everywhere else, the governments balance the health risks with the economic risks, right? Because, you know, there's an aspect of, you know, is the cure worse than the disease? Is locking everyone at home for X amount of months and the implication that it has on productivity, on wages, on people's ability to pay rent and mortgages and the knock-on effects of all that, you know, is that going to be worse than uh, a certain percentage of the population being infected and a smaller percentage, uh, you know, unfortunately dying? And I don't know how they do that math, but I think that that is math that politicians and leaders are probably trying very hard to wrestle with right now. I think that this will be the most difficult decision that most governments in our modern times will make because it's not dollars against dollars, it's health against dollars. And we've not, this is uncharted waters. So there's going to be yeah. some very, very difficult uh, judicious decisions made on how to, how to sort this out. 
Is there a government out there that you think is doing this particularly well or, or, or particularly poorly that you'd comment on? I don't follow enough governments to know. I think Canada and America seem to have a pretty good plan for each of them. But yeah, uh, I, I always think Switzerland does well, but I don't follow Switzerland, so I really can't say. Yeah. Yeah. From what I've seen, it looked like Singapore managed it really well with the military out making masks and hand sanitizers and, you know, getting everyone tested up front. But it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and hopefully interesting in a positive way. But I, I have no doubt that like this will be similar to 9-11 and that there will be a pre-coronavirus and a post-coronavirus world and the policies that will be implemented and the decisions that will be made afterwards, I think will be entirely different. And I, I hope it's for the positive, but I don't know at this point. I agree with you. I hope it's for the positive. Actually, I'm comfortable. It will be for the positive. We'll, we'll come out of this smarter and better, but it'll be a bit of a struggle to get through it. So John, uh, to wrap it up, is there anywhere people can reach you or learn more about the companies you're involved in the best place to look that up? Um, just go onto the website. So, uh, nwave.net and Morian res M O R R E S com, And you can find me there through, uh, my phone numbers are posted and you can reach me by emails and so forth. All Happy right. Thank all you. Great. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your day. It's very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Take care.